Today we're reading from Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. I've selected Eugene Peterson's paraphrase because it is, it is lively and vivid. It's not often we read from the paraphrase. Acts 15, beginning with verse 1. It wasn't long before some Jews showed up from Judea insisting that everyone be circumcised. If you're not circumcised in the Mosaic fashion, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas were up on their feet at once in fierce protest. The church decided to resolve the matter by sending them and a few others to put it before the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem. After they were sent off and on their way, they told everyone they met as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria about this breakthrough to the non-Jewish outsiders. Everyone who heard the news cheered. It was terrific news. When they got to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, they were graciously received by the whole church, including the apostles and the leaders. They reported on their recent journey and how God had used them to open things to the outsiders. Some Pharisees stood up to say their peace. They'd become believers, but continued to hold to the hard party line of the Pharisees. You have to, you have to circumcise the pagan converts, they said. You must make them keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the leaders, they called a special meeting to consider the matter. The argument went on and on, back and forth, getting more and more heated. Then Peter took the floor. The word of God. Then Peter took the floor. When you know a line is like that is used, something's about to go down. They're all present, all four protagonists in the story. Peter and Paul and James and Barnabas, they're all here. They're sent to the headquarters and something is about to go down. I love these kinds of stories in the Bible. 9.16, last Sabbath evening, 9.16 p.m., the question was asked of me, what seems to be the problem? I was standing outside of a locked gate at the campgrounds, camping with family and friends in Washington State. What's, amen, from the front row. Well, what seems to be the problem? The security guard asks a question that doesn't need an answer. I'm standing on the outside of the locked gate. So I say to him, we are locked out of our campsite. And he says, uh-huh. There are a few ways you could deliver those two syllables. <laughs> uh-huh. Something's about to go down, right? He could have said, uh-huh, yeah, and, but no, he says, uh-huh. We ran out to pick up a couple of things at the corner market. We came back. It's 916. The gate's locked. Yeah, they close at 9 o'clock. I said, we've been camping here for 20 years. We've never been locked out of this campground before. And the security officer says, First time for everything, they say. Something's going down. It's after sundown, so I can say all the words now, right? He's got the key to the gate right here on his belt, but he is not going to open the gate. So I say to him, nice police security officer touring the campgrounds, what are my options? Well, you can call your family on the inside. They can go to the host in your loop, and maybe the host in your loop would drive out here and let you in. It's about a mile to where we're all camped. Three of us on the outside, 15 or so on the inside. You can call and see if the host wants to come and let you in. Or you just park your car right over there and come back and get it super early in the morning, like 6 a.m., come and get it around 6 a.m. So I look right over there. 
there's a sign, and so I ask the nice security officer, you want me to park my car under the sign that says no parking at any time? He says, uh-huh. Like, that feels counterintuitive to me. He said, just be back by 6 a.m. because that's when the sheriff shows up and the sheriff parks there. I'm like, again, that feels counterintuitive to me. Like, is this it? Uh-huh. The problem, three of us on the outside of the locked gate, the rest of us on the inside, it's 9.16 p.m., there's nobody in the little booth, they've been gone for 16 whole minutes, right? How do we reunite everyone without doing more harm? How do we get everyone in the same campsite for the evening and everyone back in the same story? This is what's happening in the book of Acts for the rest of the book. From Acts 13 forward, the mission and the goal will be how do we get everyone in the one large story together without doing damage? How do we get everybody inside the locked gates? Only the question will be bigger than how do we get everyone inside the locked gates? It will be who locked the gates? Why do we put locks on gates? Who has the keys? Whom does it serve to lock the gates? And whom, whom, whom does it exclude? And is there a better way to do this than lock gates? These will be the questions now in Acts chapter 13. If it seems like we've been around this conversation, we have, only now it's on steroids. Because they're putting everything they've learned to the test, friends. How do we get everyone inside the one big Jesus story safely without doing more damage? They don't ask these questions because they just like to protest, or they like to be difficult, or they're the ones that like to break the rules. You've got that in your family. Don't look at each other right now. Right? Show me the rule and I will show you how to get around it without really breaking it so that you're going to be irritated. That's not what's going on with these four, Peter, James, Paul, and Barnabas. The conversation begins. We don't know how long the debate happens. Debate's not usually short. Are we really asking Gentiles to become Jews first so they can become Christians second? Yes, we are. Are we really saying to them that they must conform or else? Yes, we are. Are we calling this a salvation issue? Yes, we are. And then Peter takes the floor. Acts 15, verse 2. Paul and Barnabas were up on their feet at once in fierce protest. Depends on which translation you read. You'll get words like dissension and debate. These are strong words in their original language. We don't know how long the argument goes on, as I said, but you know in your house, right? Debates are not short. They're longer. They're intense. We're fighting. There are words that are being said in situations like this. It could have been days even where they're now debating and there's dissension. Paul, Barnabas, they're sent to Jerusalem to get a verdict because there's not really an answer. So they send them to Jerusalem, where the church started, Jerusalem, where all the decisions are made. Jerusalem is where it happens. We call this episode in the Bible the Jerusalem Council. Sunday, tomorrow, Monday, the next day of this week, we have our own version of the Jerusalem Council for the Seventh-day Adventist Church in our little territory. We'll be in the grand destination, not of Jerusalem, but of Tucson, Arizona, for a church council meeting 
Pastor Bev, Pastor Raywin, Dr. Joy Fair, Dr. Laura Garrigas, Kevin Strain, Sada Pinto de Silva. These are some of us who will be going, we're deployed to Jerusalem, so to speak, to represent you, where we will make decisions. We will elect officers and we will elect a new executive committee and we will make changes to our governing documents. And we pray every five years when we go to these regional meetings that there will be no dissension and debate. We pray we will come home as family and friends. This year, we may elect Sandra Roberts, our own Dr. Roberts, our own conference president, as a vice president for our regional territory. It could be a great outcome. We invite you to pray. When I say church council or meeting or constituency session, what is your instinct, by the way? Do you sit up straight? Because a few of us do over these process things. Or do you shrink a little? Kirby and I attended our first council about 25 years ago. It was right in this church, a regional meeting. We were around 30 years old, one of us younger than the other. There was dissension and debate and deceit and dishonesty that year, so much so that the two of us left and wondered, can we belong to this community of faith? When people can do this much harm, humans are so human, including the Oberg family. Our decision was we're going to work within and hope to stir up good instead of harm. When I say to you, counsel and session and meeting and, and general conference session, what happens to you? Do you sit up straight and get excited or do you shrivel a little bit? I fade a little bit, so much so that I had my fingers crossed all summer that I would not draw the short stick and have to preach this story from Acts 15. I'm like, please, Devo, don't you want it? Please, next week, Pastor Ben, don't you want it? Please, Raywin, doesn't somebody want Acts 15? I don't want Acts 15. What does a dusty old church council have to say in 2021? When our minds this morning are on Haiti, when our bodies and our hearts are wrapped up in Afghanistan, when we're sending our children to school alongside a virus and lawsuits for mandates of masks and vaccines, somebody tell me what a dusty old church council can possibly say. And this is why I study scripture. Absolutely, every time I open the book, something falls out, friends. Listen to what happened to them so many years ago in a dusty church council, Peter, James, Paul, Barnabas, when they, Peter now takes the floor. Peter says, we have evidence. Wait, wait, haven't we been through some things? Yes, Pastor Jason and Pastor Raywin, do you remember? Jason teetering on a chair, the mystery and the surprise of falling over backwards. New things are going to happen. Pastor Raywin holding up a quilt, God stitching together all these stories. Cornelius, oh yeah, we have experience. So they start to quote their experience. Verse 7, if you have a Bible open, Acts 15, verse 7. Friends, you well know from early on, God made it quite plain that God wanted the pagans to hear the message of this good news and embrace it, and not in any secondhand or roundabout way, but firsthand, straight from my mouth. And God, who can't be fooled by any pretense or part, but always knows a person's thought, God gave them the Holy Spirit, exactly as God gave it to us. 
God treated the outsiders exactly as God treated us, beginning at the very center of who they were and working from the center outward, cleaning up their lives so that they, they trusted and believed him. So why are we now trying to out-God God, loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too? Don't we believe that we've been saved by the master, Jesus, amazingly out of sheer generosity, removed to save us just as he did from beyond our nation? So what are we arguing about? There was dead silence. No one said a room, a word. The room was quiet. Peter sits down. What are we doing? Why are we trying to out-God God? What are we arguing about? Now Barnabas and Paul stand up and they take their turn. Verse 12 Barnabas and Paul reported matter-of-factly on the miracles and wonders God had done among the other nations through their ministry. The silence deepened so you could hear a pin drop. Barnabas and Paul, they know people whose lives are changed. Barnabas and Paul have also seen some things. They, Barnabas and Paul have noticed that, that people didn't become Jews so they could become Christians, so God could all of a sudden do something for them, that God is doing things for people. And people are turning up in their midst, and now they need to do, respond somehow. Who are these people turning up in our midst? What shall we do with these people? The council continues, verse 13. James broke the silence. Friends, listen. Simeon, another name for Peter. Peter just told us the story of how God, at the very outset, made sure the racial outsiders were included. This is in perfect agreement with the words of the prophet and now they quote old scripture from Amos. Amos who said, after this, I'm coming back. God is coming back. I'll rebuild David's ruined house. I'll put the pieces together again. I'll make it look like new so outsiders who seek will find and so they'll have a place to come home to, all the pagan peoples included in what I'm doing. God said it and now God's doing it. It's no afterthought. God has always known God would do this. James quoting the prophet Amos from hundreds of years earlier, and they're building their case. They're trying to understand what has been happening. How do we make sense out of the new people in our midst? There is evidence the people are turning up. God is calling people. God is calling Gentiles, which is simply a phrase, a catch-all category for anyone who's not part of Israel's tradition. It's all of the rest of us, by the way. God is calling Gentiles in all of their Gentile identity. Why are we trying to out-God God? It's the argument the four guys make. On, the feet, on their feet, these leaders are trying to create a way forward, friends. They think and they think again in real time. They're thinking and they're thinking again. They're evaluating what they know. What have we learned and what have we been taught? And could we have been wrong? In real time, they're connecting the dots. They know why they get circumcised, right? Why have we done this generation by generation, require all of us to be circumcised? How can God be adding people to our family who are now not circumcised? It turns that rep repetition of prior convictions, repetition of prior convictions, doesn't make them accurate or relevant. They have to be thought about again. 
So back to the little campsite last Saturday evening, we're standing locked on the outside of the gate and the family is on the inside and in real time we're evaluating what are our options and we begin to think and rethink again because this is the only way into the camp in dark, to drive across the spike strip, right? We know we don't do this. But the phone calls are going back to the camp and the people are on the ground and someone births a plan that we shall get a piece of plywood, we will put the plywood on the spikes and we will drive right over top of this, we will get to our campsite. If that was the plan birthed in the camp that night, are you on that team? I, I, please, tell, I, please show yourselves. Show yourselves and keep your hands up. Please show yourselves and be bold right now. Oh, you don't have so much company. Are you in the camp of spike strips means stay out? We got to figure out a different thing. Raise your hand. Come on, show yourselves. Are you in the camp or you're going to sleep in your car tonight? You're going to walk in the mile. A mile is not that much if you're doing 15,000 steps a day already, right? That's nothing. It didn't even occur to me you could put a piece of plywood on spike strips and drop over the, drive over the top. I didn't even know this was an option. You have experience. Some of you have experience. So I said to the person who birthed the idea, this works? He said, uh-huh. <laughs> I had been driving the car. It is my sister's car. I say, I am not driving my sister's car over the... I will be the one to fall off the plywood, burst the tires. This is not going down on my time. It's my older sister. Not happening. We call my older sister, she drives out, get in the front seat, I have no part of this. As they quietly drive the car over the spikes and go back to camp, the end. The end. No tires or humans hurt in this drama. It wouldn't occur to me, standing in the middle of the street in the middle of the night, to do this. But in real time, other people were thinking things. There's no sign. There are no cameras. The sheriff's not here. There's a security guard coming back. In real time, people are thinking things. And this is the creative plan that is birthed, friends. Now, in a much more significant and consequential way, this is what happens with the early disciples of Jesus. These four guys are standing up thinking things through in real time. What are our options? And at the Jerusalem Council, they come up with creative options. I've been reading Adam Grant a lot the last few weeks, this organizational psychologist. I've referenced him a couple of times this summer. In his newer book called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. By the way, the sermon series I'm waiting to preach is Everything I Learned After I Knew It All. Don't you want to hear that series? The list is super long, by the way. Adam Grant says that perhaps the skill we need most in 2029, 2021, is not to be the brightest in the room, to not, not that we need the most intellectual capacity and lifting power in the room. Perhaps what we need is the ability to think and rethink again, relearn and unlearn. What we need is some cognitive flexibility, he calls it. It's a book on meta-analysis of data, and if that gets you excited, then this book is for you. It's about three of us in the room, but he analyzes the studies. If you're a student, your teachers have told you 
Go with your first answer. Have you heard that? Go with your first answer. But the research says, actually, people who come back and look over their answers tend to score a little higher. But keep in mind, it's complicated. You still got to get through the whole test. So maybe go through your whole test and then come back, right? Think and rethink again. If you're the guy who created the BlackBerry, you wish you had thought again as Apple swiped it out of your hand, all because you didn't think people wanted a browser in, their fo- in, a, fo- in a phone, right? Or if you're the scientist who thought, I've discovered a new planet, and you actually published it in Nature, the journal Nature, which happened in the 90s, and then you recalculated your data, and you realized you forgot to correct for something, and there's no new planet, and you have to stand up in a room of colleagues and say, I was wrong. Happened. And the room erupted in applause for this astronomer. That perhaps what we need is the skill to think again. So Adam Grant says, and I think this is pretty fun for a group of uh, Christians, Adam Grant says, imagine that in your mind, when you're having a conflict or there's a protest going on, that four people enter your mind, a preacher, a prosecutor, a politician, and a scientist. If this doesn't make you a little crazy before lunch, a cognitive flexibility, anytime we're coming up against a new idea, we have kind of a, a little security guard in our mind trying to protect us. Most of us move into one of these four roles or methods of conversation. A preacher, a little close to home. A prosecutor, a politician, a scientist. We move into these zones as we're having our conversations and we're thinking in real time and we're debating and there is dissension. And each of these roles calls for different skill sets. Very quickly, if you're in preacher mode, God bless all the preachers of the world because according to the research, if you're in preacher mode, you're in a mode to protect and to preserve and to defend and to convert because when people attack our sacred beliefs, we know we're right. That's the preacher mode. And so your conversations, our conversations sound like that. If I'm in the prosecutor mode, however, I accuse and I make arguments and others are wrong and I recognize your flaws and I'm going to win my case. If I'm in politician mode, I'm going to campaign. I'm going to win the popularity contest because that's what it is. got to win you over. I'll flip-flop if I need to because I need to bring the masses along. And then Adam Grant says there's something called the scientist mode where we're a little curious and we might update our data and we experiment and we search and seek because seeking and searching is not just for people in white coats and laboratories. Our entire lives are experiments. I've been thinking about this a lot the last couple of weeks. What happens when when I feel attacked or there's dissension and debate and which of these modes do I ease into when I feel like I'm wrong? Adam Grant says being wrong is brilliant because it means we've learned a thing, church. We should be excited to be wrong because it means we've learned a thing. We think we might need to know more or the most in the room, but the skill that might serve us better in 2021 and as Christians in the Jesus story in 2021 is to be willing to be wrong, to relearn, to rethink. Peter, James, Barnabas, Paul, this is what they're doing. 
God must not need everybody to be circumcised. God must not need that. We're circumcised. Our ancestors are circumcised, but God must need that. God must not need this, friends. Like in real time, they're working it out. If it wasn't for God, it must have been for us. In real time, they're being creative and thinking. We would call this present, present truth, progressive truth, unfolding truth. We care a lot about this in La Sierra because now keeps changing and here is anywhere around the world. What we know is always open to be revised, right? What they learned that day in the Jerusalem Council is that their attachment cannot be to their ideas or their convictions. Their attachment has to be to people. Their attachment has to be to God. So they rethink. Verse 19, this is the decision they come up with. Here's my decision, Peter says. We're not going to unnecessarily burden non-Jewish people who turn to the master. We'll write them a letter and tell them this instead. Be careful, don't get involved in activities connected with idols. Be careful to guard morality of sex and marriage. Don't serve food offensive to Jewish Christians, blood for instance. This is the most basic wisdom from Moses, preached and honored for centuries. Now in city after city after where we have met and kept the Sabbath. So just don't do these four things. We don't know how they came up with these four things, but they're mentioned frequently in the Bible. And when you take them all together, it seems to be commandments that say, make sure you're exclusive to God. Check my loyalties, that my loyalties will be to God. In Acts 15, the community learns they can move with cultural sensitivity. They absolutely can. How were we making Gentile Christians uncomfortable? It's a question they ask. We can also ask, how were we making Jewish believers who have become Christian uncomfortable? We can ask for consideration and allowances from one another. We simply can't make it a salvation issue. This is what the story is teaching. The point is not that the oldest members are the most comfortable or that we all conform inside this community. The point is that we have respect and honor. When we cross boundaries, we have to cross boundaries responsibly. Boundary breaking for the sake of breaking simply breaks. But boundary crossing for the sake of community, it builds. It turns out in this story, there is a first time for everything. We haven't seen it all in our homes. If you, if you work in a team or an office or a corporation, if you have neighbors, if you're part of a family, if you live in a city and you want to be engaged, if you're in, in a nation, this kind of thinking and analysis and assessment helps all of us. It turns out we're able to stand in the middle of these discussions and dissensions and try and move ourselves from one mode of thinking to the other. There are new possibilities with the Spirit. We haven't seen it all. A few weeks ago, three of the young adults from our community were baptized away from here in Damascus, Oregon. Kylie, Jessica Peters, Jared McKinstry, the great-grandpa Ed Norton baptized the three of these out. There's the crew that got baptized. When Pastor Bev and I looked at these pictures yesterday, check out the next one. As a baptism. As a baptism in a barrel, and I've never seen such a thing, have you? <laughs> and it is a baptism all the same, right? 
This is a barrel that's traveled with great grandpa Norton all around the, year, the world, Argentina, 54 years ago. This is the barrel he used for crusade meetings. You can get baptized in a barrel. We are able to do new things. The council sets this valuable precedent for us. We can think and we can rethink again, church family. We can ask ourselves what we've learned and what we need to unlearn. I've started asking myself now at the end of each day, did I learn a new thing today? Was I wrong somewhere today? Did I say I was sorry? In the Jerusalem council, they didn't. They didn't get everything exactly the way we might prefer. They didn't say they were sorry. They didn't have the Gentiles in the room as they were discussing. They talked about them without them. I would do that differently. So I can ask myself every night, well, where was I wrong today? Did I say I'm sorry? Do I have something to relearn tomorrow? It turns out this is a very Adventist and biblical way of living our lives, to ask ourselves every day, did I learn something new? Do I need to unlearn something? Do I need to say I'm sorry and I got that wrong? For about 10 years in our denomination in the 1840s and 50s, we taught that God had already saved everyone God could save, that the door to heaven was shut. It was called the shut door theory. We were called the Sabbath and shut door people. That's not such an attractive title. But after 10 years, we realized we got that wrong. We were wrong. We need to say when we're wrong. I'm going to close with these words from Ellen White. We have many lessons to learn, many, many to unlearn. God and heaven alone are infallible. Those who think they never need to give up a cherished view, they never have occasion to change an opinion, they will be disappointed. As long as we hold to our own ideas and opinions with determined consistence, persistency, we can't have the unity for which Christ prayed. So the intentional church in 2021, we might be a church excited to be wrong. The goal of these stories in the Bible is not that the new Christians will simply repeat the experiences of the old Christians, friends. The goal is that we would all have our own experience. So we're asking this why all summer, not so that we would all walk away with the same patterns, but that we would internalize things and we will come alive in God with Jesus through the Spirit. Watch this two minutes with the comedian Michael Jr., does comedy shows all around the world. Thank you, Rob Thomas, for this video. Michael Jr., in the middle of his comedy routines, will stop and kind of talk to the audience. But listen what happens this day when he talks to a music teacher. A musical director. Yes, Ooh. sir. All right, so um, let, me get a couple, let me get a couple bars of like uh, Amazing Grace. Can you do the first part of that? Go ahead. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow. That rock could sing. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Uh, now, once you give me the version, is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid, 
I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Okay, um, here's what I want you to catch. The first time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time, he knew why he was doing it. And that is the difference. We're not here hoping everyone will have duplicate, replicate, and identical experiences. We are here so that each one of us will meet our maker and know why. May we make room for all of that beauty in all of its glory. May we be bold enough to doubt ourselves and challenge our convictions because the Spirit has promised to guide us home. Amen.